Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 77 South Dakota versus Dole. This is a U.S. Supreme Court case from back in 1987. This was a 7 2 decision where the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the federal statute that said the federal government would withhold a certain amount of federal highway funds from the states unless they raised their drinking age to 21. South Dakota argued the feds had no legitimate authority to do that. No, the whole enumerated powers and stuff. For one, drinking ages should be determined at the state level, South Dakota said. Because there's no enumerated power in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, giving Congress the legit authority to address the drinking age in each state, and that the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition, left the regulation of alcohol sales up to each state. That was their arguments. Unfortunately, South Dakota lost those arguments. Now, this federal statute that we're talking about, the states had to raise their drinking age to 21 if they wanted all the highway money that the federal government was going to dole out because they're so magnanimous. This statute affected me directly because I was in college at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, from 1985, when I started my freshman year, till 1989, when I graduated. These rules were being implemented in North Carolina at that time. This particular case, U.S. Supreme Court made this ruling in 87, so right in the middle of my time in college. A little history on drinking ages. I found drinkingmaps.com, which is a cool site. And because you guys are concerned about this type of information, I have linked to it in the notes. North Carolina had no legal drinking age prior to Prohibition. After Prohibition, it was 18. And then when the 26th Amendment was passed, which allowed people 18 to vote in 1971, in North Carolina, the drinking age was 18 for beer and wine and 21 for liquor. Beer and wine was raised to 19 in 1983, and to 21 in 1986 because of this statute, the National Minimum Drinking Age Act. And ever since then, it has been 21. So looking at this time frame, I turned to 19 in September of 1985. So I was legal my freshman year. Drinking age was 19. I was 19. Then North Carolina raised the drinking age to 21, effective September 1st, 1986, which was the beginning of my sophomore year. And they did not grandfather it in. It went from 19 to 21, all at one time, no grandfathering. So I was not legal when I was 20, my sophomore year. Legal at 19 as a freshman, not legal 20 as a sophomore, then legal again at 21 as a junior. So we were dry for a year, or at least we couldn't buy it legally. Of course, my roommate, who was in the same situation, and I went out and we bought a year's supply of beer while we still could. And while we did have to sacrifice a closet in our dorm room, it got us through that year. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and the other Speakeasy Ideas podcast through your favorite podcast app, or just go right to speakeasyideas.com slash the law to find the archives of these podcasts right there. Follow this podcast on social media. You'll be kept up to date on everything going on. That's Twitter at the law, DKW, and on Facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. Let me know what you think, like, share, all of that. I'd love to come and talk with your group or your class or be involved in your cool projects. Uh, if you would like to learn more about that, contact Bethany 
at speakeasyideas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you are interested in contributing to our work here at The Law with DK Williams via a sponsorship. It would be a tremendous help and very much appreciated. All right, in this case, who do we have? We've got South Dakota, one of the 50 sovereign states in the union. They did not want to raise their drinking age to 21. They wanted to keep it at 19, but that would have subjected them to losing money that had been collected by the federal government from them and the other 49 sovereign states in the union. The money was then going to be returned to them after the feds, of course, take their cut, use their vigorish to pay for a massive bureaucracy. South Dakota wanted all their money and wanted to keep the drinking age at 19. Dole is not Bob Dole. It's Elizabeth Dole, his wife. She was the director of transportation under Ronald Reagan, who was president at the time. Her name is on the suit. She had a lifetime of government jobs, including a U.S. senator from North Carolina from 03 to 09. So that's one term. She lost her bid for re-election to Democrat Kay Hagan. She then formed the Elizabeth Dole Foundation shortly after 09, which, according to its website, says the Elizabeth Dole Foundation is the preeminent organization empowering, supporting, and honoring our nation's military caregivers, the spouses, parents, family members, and friends who care for America's wounded, ill, or injured veterans. So that's what Elizabeth Dole is doing now. She's 83 now, lives in Salisbury, North Carolina. And I'll just note for the record, for whatever it's worth, that this is a Republican administration, Ronald Reagan, arguing on behalf of federal power over the states. Whatever that means to you, it's just the truth. So the Supreme Court voted 7-2 to two in favor of Elizabeth Dole, Director of Transportation, and the Reagan administration, and Congress, which had passed this statute. The opinion was written by the Chief Justice William Rehnquist, nominated by a Republican, Nixon to the bench originally, and then Reagan bumped him up to Chief Justice. Also in the majority, Colorado's own Byron White, who was nominated by a Democrat, JFK. White, as I like to remind people, back in 1938, led the NFL in rushing and was the highest paid player in the league as a running back for the Pittsburgh Steelers. Also in the majority, another democratically appointed Justice Thurgood Marshall, LBJ nominated him. Also in the majority, Harry Blackman, nominated by Nixon. Lewis Powell, nominated by Nixon. John Paul Stevens, another Republican, Gerald Ford, and Antonin Scalia, another Republican nominee, Ronald Reagan. So again, for what it's worth, the seven-person majority that ruled in favor of federal government power consisted of five Republican appointees and two Democratic appointees. Now, the two dissents were both appointed by Republicans. William Brennan, who was appointed by Ike, although while he was appointed by a Republican in Eisenhower, he is known historically for being a very, quote-unquote, progressive Supreme Court justice. Sandra Day O'Connor also wrote separately, nominated by Reagan. So what do we got here? How do we get here? What are the facts? How did the court analyze the questions? Jump right into Rehnquist's prose. He starts off by saying and explaining this situation. Petitioner South Dakota permits persons 19 years of age or older, well, they did back then, to purchase beer containing up to 3.2% alcohol. In 1984, Congress enacted the statute, which directs the Secretary of Transportation, which is Elizabeth Dole, to withhold a percentage of federal highway funds otherwise allocable 
from states in which the purchase or public possession of any alcoholic beverage by a person who was less than 21 years of age is lawful. The state sued in U.S. District Court seeking a declaratory judgment that the statute violates the constitutional limitations on congressional exercise of the spending power and violates the 21st Amendment, which repeal prohibition to the U.S. Constitution. Now, right off the bat, I wonder this right now. What, what is the real problem here? Is it the existence of the income tax? Because it's back up. Because the 16th Amendment, prior to the 16th Amendment, federal government couldn't directly tax your income or anybody's income, entity's income. So they didn't have as much money to dole out, right? That really enabled them to get a bunch of money and dole it out. That existence, I submit, had something to do with the government, the federal government, starting to hand out money and attaching strings to it. Because they got a lot of money. And I'll just ask also... Without making any editorial comment, if U.S. senators were still picked and had been picked in the 80s by state legislators, legislatures, as they were under the original terms of the Constitution, would this type of federal arm twisting exist? Like, hey, if you guys want your money back, you got to do what we tell you. Or would senators who were dependent on state legislatures for their position, would they not be so willing to override state authority. I submit they might not be so willing to override state authority and South Dakota could still have a 19-year-old drinking age. And we talked about, or the court already mentioned, the 21st Amendment. Of note in the 21st Amendment is that part which allows states to regulate alcohol within their borders, and they can be dry if they want to. So what Section 2 says... After Section 1 says the 18th Amendment is repealed, Section 2 says the transportation or importation into any state, territory, or possession of the United States for delivery or use therein of intoxicating liquors in violation of the laws thereof is hereby prohibited. Saying that if states want to keep it out, states can do it. It's just no longer a federal law. And we dealt with some of the ramifications of that section of Amendment 21 and modern applications of it in Episode 46 of the law, where we talked about Tennessee Wine and Spirits versus Thomas, which was a case that the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court, decided just last year. Prohibition is still an issue, the repeal of it anyway. And the 21st Amendment had a time limit on it as well, a seven-year time limit, just like the proposed Equal Rights Amendment, which has kind of been mentioned here recently. But in the ERA, the states didn't meet that seven-year time limit. More to that story, of course, a lot more to it. RBG has recently acknowledged that the ERA is dead because they didn't get it done within the seven years. And if people want it, they need to start it over if they're ever going to implement it. So they couldn't get the ERA passed in seven years. How long did it take them to repeal prohibition? Less than a year, about 10 months. 21st Amendment proposed by Congress in February of 33, 1933, and was ratified by the requisite number of states in December of 1933. Less than a year. And just as an aside, the last dry state was Mississippi. They opened up in 1966 to allow counties in the state to sell if they wished. And there's still dry counties in the U.S. All right, back to the legal issues. Rehnquist wrote, In this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, the parties, South Dakota and the federal government, direct most of their efforts to defining the proper scope of the 21st Amendment, relying on our statement, the U.S. Supreme Court, in a 1980 decision, which, remember, was seven years prior to this, so not that long ago, when they said in that decision, 21st Amendment grants the states virtual complete control over whether to permit importation or sale of alcohol, of liquor, and how to structure the liquor distribution system. South Dakota, in this case, Rehnquist says, asserts that the setting of minimum drinking ages is clearly within the core powers reserved to the states under Section 2 of the 21st Amendment, which repealed prohibition. Of course, as I've already said, court did not find that argument compelling. The federal statute South Dakota claimed usurps that core power. 
Now, as you guys know, the feds have been usurping power, including state power and power from individuals, since shortly after the Constitution was passed. This is because states and individuals have allowed it. We've discussed that in the past. And notice how South Dakota is claiming or talking about core power, state power, not states' rights. And I think that's an important thing to mention. States don't have rights. The federal government doesn't have rights. Governments have power. They have authority over you. Individuals have rights. Individual has a right not to be locked in a cage without due process. The state doesn't have the right to put you in there. The state has the authority to put you in there. And the distinction, I think, is important. Rehnquist goes on for the majority. The secretary, the federal government, in response, asserts that the 21st Amendment that is simply not implicated here. The plain language of Section 2 of the 21st Amendment confirms the state's broad power to impose restrictions, even completely denying it, on the sale and distribution of alcoholic beverages in the state. But it does not confer on them, according to the federal government in this case, any power to permit sales that Congress seeks to prohibit. Get it? So the U.S. Congress government, U.S. federal government, is saying that if Congress wants to prohibit alcohol sales, they can. Well, isn't that what prohibition was? Seems pretty weak to me. Rehnquist goes on. That amendment, the 21st Amendment, under this reasoning, would not prevent Congress from affirmatively enacting a national minimum drinking age more restrictive than that provided by the various state laws. And it would follow a fortiori, of course, directly, that the indirect inducement involved here is compatible with the 21st Amendment. So this is indirect because they're not saying you have to raise your drinking age to 21. They're saying you don't have to, but if you want this money, you will. So that's indirect inducement. Now, this argument about Congress being able to set a national minimum age for drinking doesn't make sense if you play it out to its logical ends. Not if we're going to have any type of consistency in interpreting the Constitution. Because if the feds can institute a national drinking age, which they're not doing here, they're not saying everybody has to do this. They're saying if you don't do what we want you to, you don't get all your money back. If the feds can institute a national drinking age, what constitutional limit is there on that age? Can Congress institute a 47-year-old drinking age? If they can do it for 21, why can't they do it for 47? What is the textual basis for a limit on that power? If we're going to say Congress can do this, they can set a national drinking age, there is no constitutional text that limits that power if we assume it's there. No limit to making it 72. So in a 72-year-old national drinking age would effectively reimpose prohibition by a congressional act when they at least had the decency to follow the Constitution, the amendment process, when they first imposed federal prohibition. That argument seems weak to me. And the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't buy it. They don't really get to that part of it. But that's what the government is arguing. Rinqua says, Despite the extended treatment of the question by the parties, however, we need not decide in this case... See what I'm saying? Whether that amendment, 21st Amendment, would prohibit an attempt by Congress to legislate directly a national minimum drinking age. So that was not addressed by the Supreme Court. But again, any age limit is a prohibition to some degree. A 21-year-old age limit is prohibition of people under 21 drinking. A 30-year-old age limit is a prohibition on people under 30. So it's all a prohibition. It's just a matter of if it's a complete prohibition or not a complete prohibition. And at what point would Congress be able to draw that line? I submit they don't have the power at all. Rehnquist goes on. Here, Congress has acted indirectly under its spending power remember that, to encourage, encourage uniformity in the state's drinking ages. As we, the U.S. Supreme Court explained below, we find this legislative effort within constitutional bounds. 
even if Congress may not regulate drinking ages directly. So we're not going to say if Congress can institute a national drinking age, even if they cannot, what they're doing here is okay. I'll circle back to this underlying problem of Congress even having this money to dole out. Without an income tax, it wouldn't be so easy for them to collect the money, and so the spending power would be limited. Unfortunately, they do have the money. They can spend it and put strings on it, now that the Supreme Court has said they can. So while the immediate issue in this case is if Congress can put strings on the money it doles out, strings like this anyway, the underlying issue is why does Congress have all this money in the first place to dole out? Het, dole, right? Dole out. All right, back to the opinion. As one should, we go to the language of the Constitution. Rehnquist notes, the Constitution empowers Congress to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts and excises to pay the debts and provide for the general defense and general welfare of the United States. Right there in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1, the first thing in the list of enumerated powers. Let's take a moment and look at this. Let's discuss this. This general welfare provision has been treated as if it were an unlimited grant of power to Congress and the federal authorities. Perhaps the general welfare clause should have been omitted here because it's being used like a blank check which is not the intention. It cannot be the intention because otherwise, why would they have mentioned 18 other things depending on how you count them, 17 or 18? Because they could have left those three words out. Could have said, Congress has power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense of the United States, period. I omitted and general welfare there. That would have worked. They didn't and it's caused problems. People argue that the general welfare clause means Congress could do anything it deems is in the general welfare of the country. And if that's true, there was no need to continue with the other clauses, the other powers of Congress. For example, if it is a blank check, if Congress says it's the general welfare or if some, some program is in the general welfare, then there's no need to specifically authorize, for example, a post office, which the Constitution does. Because if all Congress needs is to find it's in the general welfare, they could have said, hey, you know what? It'd be in the general welfare if we have a post office. That's all the authority we need right here in Clause 1, Article 1, Section 8. We don't need anything else yet. They did put the rest of it in there. There must be a reason the Constitution lists certain things that Congress can do. It must be a limitation. That general welfare must be done in furtherance of one of those powers. Alas, that is not where we are. Just here's an example. You guys might find this compelling or not. Let's say you've got an army quartermaster. And I bring that up because I'm reading Ron Chernow's biography on Grant right now. And Grant was a quartermaster for a while before the Civil War. The quartermaster is a military officer responsible for providing quarters. Get it? Quartermaster. Also rations, which is food, clothing, other supplies. So that's why this example is on my mind. So if a, if a quartermaster is told by his superiors, okay, it's your job to make sure the troops are fed. And you're only authorized to buy certain things towards that end. Staples like rice, beans, beef, onions, potatoes, whatever. And that's on a list. But if the quartermaster then says, you know what, I'm going to buy pate and caviar and spend the money there because you guys said I have the authority to feed the troops and that's my responsibility. So that list is irrelevant. I don't think that argument would go over very well in that guy's court-martial, right? or demotion, or whatever kind of trouble he would get into. But that's the argument people advance when they try to use a general welfare clause to authorize anything Congress wants to do. Hey, we've, we've got the authority to provide for the general welfare. Oh, that list you gave me is irrelevant. That's illogical. Beyond illogical, it's stupid. But that's where we are. And Rehnquist says the spending power that Congress may attach conditions on the receipt of federal funds. I don't think that necessarily follows. It doesn't. Because Congress has the taxing power, they do, that's listed there, no problem. Because Congress can tax, does it follow that it therefore has the power to put conditions on what it spends, what it doles out to the states? 
Because you have the power to collect money doesn't mean you have the power to spend it however you want. That doesn't necessarily follow in the slightest, but that's what the court has said. Rehnquist goes on, the federal government has repeatedly employed the power to further broad policy objectives, right, the general welfare, by conditioning receipt of federal monies upon compliance by the recipient with federal statutory and administrative directives. You can have the money if we do what you tell you. And the court here is making some or putting some weight into this statement that the feds have repeatedly employed this power. Well, just because they've repeatedly employed the power doesn't mean it's legitimate. It just means they've been repeatedly violating the Constitution in any event. So the Supreme Court here in this 87 case, South Dakota versus Dole, they cite several cases in support of this proposition that federal government can dole out money with strings attached to it. The oldest one is from 1936, nothing before that. 1936, what was going on? You have the FDR court and New Deal cases. The camel nose under the tent metaphor comes to mind. You let that camel nose under the tent. Pretty soon he's actually brought in his extended family. So now you've got the camel's wife, kids, cousins, their friends, and they needed more room. So now the tent is just gone. The constitutional limit on federal power is that tent. And that tent is effectively gone when it comes to that assertion of federal power. And this case demonstrates that. Rehnquist goes on, the breadth of this power to dole out money with strings attached to it was made clear in this 1936 case. FDR New Deal Court, where the court, resolving a long-standing debate over the scope of the spending clause, determined that the power of Congress to authorize expenditure of public monies for public purpose is not limited, remember that, this power is not limited by the direct grants of legislative power found in the Constitution. That is the U.S. Supreme Court in 1936. And they mentioned this long-standing debate, the court here in this 87 case, about the scope of the spending clause. We've talked about this before. Lochner and then West Coast Hotel versus Parrish, which ended the Lochner era. We went over Lochner in episode 68 and then the West Coast Hotel case in episode 70. And now the court started massively expanding what it would allow the federal government to do. So that whole line of cases is the basis for the court's opinion here. But remember this, this in 36, and the U.S. Supreme Court is citing this in 87 as authoritative. The power of Congress to spend money is not limited by the direct grants of legislative power in the Constitution. So the constitutional power granted to Congress is not limited by the Constitution. That's what it's saying. Those 18 things, forget about it. Those enumerated powers, forget about it. They're, they don't limit what Congress can do with its money. That's just untenable. It is an evisceration of the enumerated powers. Have you ever gutted a fish or seen it done? The main character in Office Space guts the fish in his office. Well, you cut along the belly of the fish, you pull out the innards and dispose of them. You throw them away. And that's what's been done here with the enumerated powers. They've been pulled out and thrown away. And the Supreme Court isn't sly about it. They acknowledge it. The court says, in this case, thus objectives not thought to be within Article I's enumerated legislative fields may nevertheless be attained through the use of the spending power and the conditional grant of federal funds. The effect of this statement is that the Supreme Court is acknowledging this. Congress has certain limited enumerated powers which provide unlimited and unenumerated power. I'm not overstating this. The objectives not within the enumerated powers the enumerated legislative fields, may nevertheless be attained. That's, we're going to ignore it. The Constitution says this, but we're going to ignore it. That's literally what this is saying, all under the guise of the power to provide for the general welfare. We're, that means we don't have to worry about these listed powers. Doesn't matter. 
So after this broad statement, in this case, eviscerating the enumerated powers, Rehnquist attempts to walk it back a little bit, at least philosophically, if not practically. There's no practical application of this. He says, the spending power is, of course, not unlimited. Uh, well, thank goodness for that. It's kind of what you just said. But, he says, is instead subject to several general restrictions articulated in our cases. So these limits are articulated in their cases, but except for the first one they're going to talk about here, first one out of four, these limitations are not in the Constitution itself. They're making them up because they are learned intellectuals with superpowers and knowledge. So the first of these limitations, he says, is derived from the language of the Constitution itself. That's the exercise of the spending power must be in pursuit of the general welfare. Great, because that's a meaningless limit. The general welfare doesn't mean anything except what Congress says it means. Congress would never pass anything they couldn't argue was for the general welfare. And if they say it's for the general welfare, apparently that's cool with the Supreme Court. Everything every despot ever did was, in his mind, for the general welfare. Mao's cultural revolution was for the general welfare, in his mind. Not, of course, for the specific people who died, but for the general welfare. Not for the specific welfare of those people, but for the general welfare. So the general welfare is the same concept as the good of the collective. Forget about individuals. It's for the good of the collective. And that's no limit on authority at all. If we say, you know, hey, it's for the general welfare, we can do it. But the purpose of the Constitution is to protect individuals, which this completely is directly opposed to that proposition. So that's the first limit that Rehnquist says exists in the court. So what are the limits? They're found in the rest of the list. Rehnquist does state, goes on, in considering whether a particular expenditure is intended to serve general public purposes, the general welfare, courts should defer substantially to the judgment of Congress. Defer, but not demur. So the court can substitute its judicial judgment for the legislative judgment and come up with a different result regarding the general welfare, which again is a violation of the separation of powers. So the, and, and the court acknowledges the uselessness of this general welfare limit in a footnote. Footnote two, the level of deference to the congressional decision is such that the court has more recently questioned whether general welfare is a judicially enforceable restriction at all. No kidding. I'm glad we have these super intelligent Ivy League graduates, intellectuals, figuring this stuff out for us. The court goes on. Second, we, the Supreme Court, have required that if Congress desires to condition the state's receipt of federal funds, if we're going to let them put strings on money, it must do so unambiguously, enabling the states to exercise their choice knowingly, cognizant of the consequences of their participation. Where is that in the Constitution? That's made up. And there's no doubt Congress did that here. They, they said, this is what you guys got to do. Clearly, got to raise it to 21, or you don't get all of your money back. You don't get 5% back. Third, Rehnquist goes on, our cases have suggested, without significant elaboration, that conditions on federal grants might, might be illegitimate if they are unrelated to the federal interest in particular national projects or programs. The parenthetical here is that he put in parentheses, we've suggested parentheses, without significant elaboration, close parentheses. That's tacit acknowledgement that this third test is useless. And then the language that the grants might be illegitimate is not helpful. That's just useless. They might be illegitimate, and eh, maybe not. Uh, I don't know. What can I tell you? And the unrelated to federal interest part, unrelated, related, kind of related, pure subjective judgment that ties back to the first limitation of the general welfare clause, which is none whatsoever, and the court acknowledges it is no restriction. Finally, the fourth one, 
We have noted that other constitutional provisions may provide an independent bar to the conditional grant of federal funds. And that's the argument South Dakota is making here. They say the 21st Amendment, which is now part of the Constitution, gives states complete power to regulate the sale of alcohol in their state. And therefore, the feds can't have a policy for a uniform national drinking age that they will impose on states like South Dakota. So this independent bar, what they're saying is that the federal government can't say, we're not going to give you this money unless you impose cruel and unusual punishment. Because that's already in there. The Constitution says you can't impose cruel and unusual punishment. So the feds can't tie money to that. And South Dakota saying, well, they can't tie it to telling us what the drinking age is either. Supreme Court doesn't buy it. And again, the Supreme Court goes back and acknowledges that this general welfare concept is no limitation at all because it's whatever Congress says it is. The Supreme Court says, we can readily conclude, we, the Supreme Court, that the provision is designed to serve the general welfare, especially in light of the fact that the concept of welfare is shaped by Congress. Congress found that the differing drinking ages in the states created particular incentives for young persons to combine their desire to drink with their ability to drive, and that this interstate problem required a national solution. So because Congress said that was in the advancement of the general welfare, a national drinking age, or us trying to make the states give us a national drinking age, since that's the general welfare, then it is. But what if Congress decided that the differences in how each state handles divorce, quote, required a national system or a national solution? That decision that Congress says, we, it would be good for us to have a national system, some national uniformity, that decision is irrelevant to its constitutionality. Congress could, in all earnestness, believe that a national divorce court would be in furtherance of the general welfare. But there's no constitutional basis for a national divorce court or a national standard for alimony. Them deciding it's for the general welfare isn't enough. But in modern jurisprudence it is. You could easily make an argument and justify a national family law statute. But that should be ridiculous to anyone who cares about what the Constitution actually says. And court keeps expanding the illegitimate authority of Congress that allows this usurpation of power. The court says, The condition of taking the money here, of getting the money here, imposed by Congress is directly related to one of the main purposes for which highway funds are expended, safe interstate travel. Okay, that statement by itself is okay, but it's obviously pretext. Congress didn't like that some states had drinking ages under 21, and Congress wanted to impose that on states like South Dakota. Interstate commerce is the pretext upon which they are hanging their policy decision and imposing it on the states. They could have made it a federal crime to cross a state line under the influence of alcohol, but driving under the influence is already a crime in every state. No need for federal intervention. So driving drunk isn't the real issue because that's already illegal. The issue is that Congress doesn't think if you're under 21, you should be able to drink and that states are too stupid to make that decision on their own. Rehnquist goes on. This goal of the interstate highway system had been frustrated by varying drinking ages among the states. Wait, a goal of the interstate highway system is a drinking age? I guess so. Rehnquist goes on. A presidential commission, probably a blue ribbon commission, appointed to study alcohol-related accidents and fatalities on the nation's highways, concluded that the lack of uniformity in the state's drinking ages created an incentive to drink and drive because young persons commute to border states where the drinking age is lower. That's your National Commission findings. Rinkwa says, by enacting the statute, National Minimum Drinking Age Coercion Act, 
which is not its official name. Congress conditioned the receipt of federal funds in a way reasonably calculated, reasonably, ca- again, that is no standard whatsoever, reasonably calculated to address this particular impediment to a purpose for which the funds are expended. Now, O'Connor in her dissent says, no, that's ridiculous. She's agreeing with me to that point anyway. Because if the problem is people drinking and driving that are under 21, I don't know why it's not a problem for people drinking and driving over 21. It just goes to the pretextual nature of this whole argument. Because it's still illegal for a 19-year-old, even in South Dakota, where he could drink up to this point, it's still illegal for that 19-year-old to drive drunk. And if a 19-year-old drove from one state to another state where he was now legal, it's still illegal for him to possess and consume beer in his home state where he's still underage. And if he stayed in the visiting state where he's legal, he's still subject to the drunk driving consumption laws there. That's got nothing to do with the constitutionality of this program. This problem of drunk driving by people under 21 is addressed by state law. No federal intervention needed. That doesn't stop the feds from poking their camel nose under the tent, though. This is an absolute pretext. The goal here of Congress is to raise the drinking age because they don't think anyone under 21 should drink. That's their judgment. And they don't want the states to have it because the states are not doing what the feds want them to do. This interstate travel thing is not the actual reason behind this act. And everybody's just pretending it is. Rehnquist goes on. The remaining question about the validity of the statute and the basic point of disagreement between the parties is whether the 21st Amendment, which repeal prohibition, constitutes an independent constitutional bar to the conditional grant of federal funds. So like Congress, like I said, couldn't limit taking money unless you impose cruel and unusual punishment. They can't do that, so they can't make the states raise the drinking age. That doesn't hold up. South Dakota relying on its view that the 21st Amendment prohibits direct regulation of drinking ages by Congress, asserts that Congress may not use the spending power, put strings on money it's handing out, to regulate that which it is prohibited from regulating directly under the 21st Amendment. But our cases, U.S. Supreme Court cases, show that this independent constitutional bar limitation on the spending power is not of the kind South Dakota suggests. They refer back to that 1936 case. That case established that the constitutional limitations on Congress when exercising its spending power are less exacting than those on its authority to regulate directly. Supreme Court here is again repeating this end around of legitimate congressional powers. They can't do it directly, but they can do it indirectly. Great. Rehnquist for the court says, were South Dakota to succumb to the blandishments Now, I'll get to that in a second because I had to look it up. Were South Dakota to succumb to the blandishments offered by Congress and raise its drinking age to 21, the state's action in so doing would not violate the constitutional rights of anyone. Should say would not violate the rights guaranteed by the Constitution, but nevertheless, they use it as a shorthand. So I looked up blandishment. A blandishment is a flattering or pleasing statement or action used to persuade someone gently to do something. So were South Dakota to succumb to the gentle persuasion offered by Congress. Okay, that that is a great euphemism. Blandishment as a euphemism for extort. Do what we want or we keep your money. What does that sound like? A blandishment or blackmail? I leave it to you. But don't worry, because Rehnquist goes on. Our decisions have recognized that in some circumstances, the financial inducement offered by Congress might, might be so coercive as to pass the point at which pressure turns into compulsion. So might be co- might be so coercive, another useless, completely subjective standard without any actual constitutional basis. The court here says that a 5% denial of federal funds is not that coercive. Rinkwa says, when we consider for a moment 
that all South Dakota would lose if she adheres to her chosen course as to a suitable minimum drinking age of 19. All they lose is 5% of the funds otherwise obtainable under specified highway grant programs. Again, let's back up. Why are there highway grant programs to begin with? Rehnquist in the court concludes, this argument as to coercion is shown to be more rhetoric than fact. Every rebate from a tax, the court says, when conditioned upon conduct, is in some measure a temptation. But to hold that motive or temptation is equivalent to coercion is to plunge the law in endless difficulties. I'm glad we're avoiding that. The outcome of such a doctrine court goes on, is the acceptance of a philosophical determinism by which choice becomes impossible. Till now, the law has been guided by a robust common sense, which assumes the freedom of the will as a working hypothesis in the solution of its problems. Okay, awesome. Thank you for that. So every tax rebate is an incentive, absolutely, to act a certain way or do or refrain from doing a certain thing. Every page in the tax code, the hundreds and thousands of pages of it, Beyond merely everyone has to pay X amount, everything beyond that one sentence, you all have to pay 12% or whatever. Everything beyond that is social engineering. We want you to do X, so we're going to cut you a break. We don't want you to do Y, so if you don't do it, we're going to cut you a break. Easy example of that is the mortgage deduction, which has been around a long time. That is a congressionally, it's an advancement on the congressionally accepted policy that owning a home is superior to renting because Congress thinks that's a better way for society to operate. The court closes by stating, even if Congress might lack the power to impose a national minimum drinking age directly, we conclude that encouragement to state action found in the statute is a valid use of the spending power. Accordingly, the judgment of the Court of Appeals is affirmed. South Dakota loses. The feds can keep these strings attached to federal money. Brennan's dissent is one of my favorite dissents of all time because it is so succinct. It is one paragraph, four sentences long, and I think he's absolutely right. Brennan writes in his dissent, I agree with Justice O'Connor, the other dissenter, that regulation of the minimum age of purchases of liquor falls squarely within the ambit of those powers reserved to the state by the 21st Amendment. Since states possess this constitutional power to regulate alcohol sales within their own borders, Congress cannot condition a federal grant in a manner that abridges this right. He should have said that abridges this power. The amendment, the 21st Amendment, itself strikes the proper balance between federal and state authority. I therefore dissent. He's right. O'Connor writes a lot more. Basically, I agree with her, except for a couple of things. She basically says a national minimum drinking age would be okay. That's, she's completely wrong on that. But that's not what the Congress is doing here. She says, the court today upholds the national minimum drinking age amendment as a valid exercise of the spending power conferred by the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8. But the statute is not a condition on spending reasonably related to the expenditure of federal funds. So she's saying it's not reasonable and therefore cannot be justified on that ground. Rather, it is an attempt to regulate the sale of liquor, an attempt that lies outside Congress' power to regulate commerce because it falls within the ambit of the 21st Amendment. So she's right about that. It is an attempt to regulate the sale of liquor. That's really what it is. Everything else is pretext. And Congress can't regulate that because of the 21st Amendment. O'Connor agrees with the majority that putting strings on federal money is okay. She just says that here it's not reasonably related to the purpose for which the funds are expended. It's not reasonably related to maintaining an interstate highway system. What is reasonable is different than what is constitutional, however. A workable constitutional standard can't be based on reasonableness 
because that is no standard at all. It is purely subjective. I know the argument. It's supposed to be an objective standard, but it's not. And yet the Fourth Amendment says that you should not be subject to unreasonable searches and seizures. And yes, that creates all kinds of problems because that is an unworkable standard. But that's another topic, and we have discussed it in other podcasts, other editions, other episodes of the law. And subjective limits on government are no limits at all. Everything a tyrant does, he thinks, is reasonable. O'Connor simply doesn't find this particular federal legislation reasonable. Of course, the Congress disagreed, and so did the majority of the court. She says, in my view, establishment of a minimum drinking age of 21 is not sufficiently related to interstate highway construction to justify so conditioning funds appropriated for that purpose. And there you have it. Another expansion of federal powers as a direct consequence of the federal government having money to dole out to Elizabeth Dole out. The Supreme Court allows them to do an end run on the enumerated powers because the feds have the power to spend, the court says. They can spend it on anything regardless of the actual legitimate authority conveyed to it by the enumerated powers in the Constitution. Another sad day, but at least y'all are now aware of it. I'm D.K. Williams and this has been The Law, Episode 77. South Dakota versus Dole. As always, brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think on Twitter at TheLawDKW and at Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. If you have a group you'd like me to come speak to, I'd love to do that. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. And until next week, freedom is dangerous, my friends. Live dangerously. Dangerously.